Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. My first guest is here. He's in situ. He's in the seat next door to me. He is the man who nurtured the career of the now-retired Noel Feely and himself has had a, a most interesting career, both as a jockey, a fearless jockey. He won the Velka Padovička in 1995 on a horse he trained, even though he had medical advice not to ride the horse. He subsequently has trained several hundred winners, including the a diminutive but extremely talented celibate and many others. He is, of course, the outspoken but always entertaining Charlie Mann. Charlie, good morning. Good morning, Nick. And you're looking fresh and, and pretty hale and hearty, given the fact that you were at Noel Feely's retirement party last night. Was it a good send-off for the great man? I think it was, yeah. We had lots of people there, um, lots of jockeys, trainers, and all his family came over from Ireland. So, yeah, it was a good do. And it was a lovely day, wasn't it? A fantastic atmosphere yesterday at Newbury. It was a lovely day. Uh, lovely weather, good racing. Ground was great. I mean, everything was good. It all worked really well, actually. And uh, it was a sad day, but it was a good day because... Um, he packed up in one piece, and that's the most important thing. I, I described you as outspoken. You, you're never shy of delivering an opinion on all, all things horse racing and all people in the sport, but about Noel Feely, I've never heard you say a bad word, nor anyone for that matter. I think you're right. I don't think anyone has. Um, I think he didn't get the credit he deserved in that he wasn't really discovered until about seven years ago. And he's been with me. He came to me in 98, and... He ticked away, he rode winners, but he was always good. And someone with his talent, I'm sure it should have been recognised before then anyway. So how did you pick him up in the first place? He went to David Nicholson's for two weeks, and he didn't like that. And I got him through a, a bloodstock agent called Bobby O'Ryan. And Bobby told mm. me about him, and Noel was a point-to-point -point jockey. And um, I managed to get him over, and he stayed with us for about 12 years, I suppose. So having not particularly warmed to the maybe more harsh environment of the Dukes, he came to a sort of more warmer, fluffier, cuddlier environment at, at Charlie Mann's. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be a soft touch compared to the Duke, I think. So uh, it was, uh, he probably got away a bit more at our place than he would have done at the Dukes, yeah. And t to what extent did he help your career at the time? Because you'd probably only been training for, what, five or six years at the time? Yeah, would have done. Um, he, he did help, of course he helped me because um, he's a great judge of pace. Um, he doesn't say a lot after a race, but what he does say, you take on board. Very sympathetic rider and, I mean, you, you, he, there was no holes in what he did. He, he, was, he, was, the, he was a perfect all-round jockey. And because you'd ridden yourself, and as I said, you, you were quite a fearless jumps jockey, does that make you more understanding of jockeys or does it make you more judgmental of riders, do you think? I think if you've ridden in a race you understand what goes on an awful lot more than if you haven't. And, and the problems that happen in the race, uh, horses getting in the wrong position, pace-wise. So you, it must, obviously, if you've ridden in a race, you understand more about what's going on out there than if you haven't. And your own riding career, just take me back to the beginning of that. Where did it, where did it start? It started, um, I was with a fellow called Tony Gillam up in Yorkshire. And I had my first rides for him. And... It was it was going okay, but then I got a phone call from Michael Dickinson, and it was his first season training, and he offered me a job. And at the same time, it was Nicky Henderson's second season, and he'd done okay in the, in his first season. And I didn't think Michael would make a trainer, actually. <laughs> and uh, I got that wrong anyway, but um, I came down to Lambourne, and I don't regret, regret coming down, because I've been there ever since, and um, I've enjoyed it. So you, you were in this position of being a youngish rider 
having a job offer from Michael Dickinson and Nicky Henderson. Yeah, more or less. That's the stuff of dreams, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, it was at the time. But, um, yeah, I mean, I might have ridden a few more winners if I'd gone to Michael, but at the same time, I've enjoyed living at Lambourne, and I still do. What is it about Lambourne that you, you like? It's close to London, it's close to Heathrow, all, all, all the big tracks are an hour away. It's very well situated, but it's a nice village, it's, it's a beautiful countryside, and um, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't live anywhere else. And when you came to, to Lambourne to, to ride, what were, your, what were your aspirations then? Were you, were you genuinely thinking you could be the next champion, or was it always with a view to training horses in the end? No, I think if you're, if you're young and you're riding, I mean, you, you've got to set a target and obviously everyone, every jockey's target is to be champion jockey. Um, unfortunately, there's only one person that makes it and you know, it's, it, there's a, probably a lot more better jockeys around and certainly myself anyway, but um, yeah, you, I think in any sport you aspire to be the best and um, I wasn't. What was the atmosphere like in the weighing room in the late 70s, 80s? It was great fun. I mean, I'm sure they've had a lot of fun now, but it's... Um, we didn't have drug tests, alcohol tests, and we used to take the mickey out of each other an awful lot. Um, and I remember I rode in six Grand Nationals, and I think I was only sober for two of them, which you couldn't do nowadays, obviously. And I wouldn't have got on the horse if I had, had been sober, I promise you that. Was it that terrifying? It was. I mean, I rode two horses I'd never seen before, and they didn't jump. And, yeah, I mean, you, you needed a bit of Dutch courage, I think, in those days. And was that, was that as standard, then? I wouldn't say it was standard, but a lot of people weren't riding the sort of horses that I was. So, um, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's standard, no. I mean, it's amazing how times have changed, because you can't run a horse that can't jump in a Grand National now. You just have to be a, a horse of a, a fairly decent standard. But in those days, they were running all sorts. It was a much lesser... I mean, the fences were bigger, first of all, and, and you, you didn't tend to run a very good horse in it. Um, and obviously now you've got, you've got to be 145-plus to get into the Grand National. Mm. In the old days, I think it was 110, something like that. But, I mean, it's a t completely different race now, but so it should be. It's worth a million pounds, and you've got very good horses. You've got Gold Cup horses running it now. So it's changed. And presumably, for all that you enjoyed your time as a, I'm not going to say a hellraiser, but somebody who enjoyed the game and perhaps needed that Dutch courage to go out and ride in Grand Nationals, you appreciate, as a trainer, the need to, to put the horses first now. Absolutely. I mean, we can't do our job without the horses, but yeah, the horse is always first in our mind. But, you know, you also have to think about jockeys. Mm. I mean, there's a great thing on a horse welfare, but I mean, no one said anything about jockeys getting hurt. And, and they're, in, you know, they're, in fact, they're very important, the jockeys, because they're human beings. And uh, so we don't want to see anyone getting hurt. But of course, human beings can, can manage their own risk to a certain extent, as you famously did when you made a, a comeback against medical advice yeah. in, in 1995. Just take me back to the beginning of this story, because you, you broke your neck. Yeah. That's the beginning and end of it, really. Yeah. Uh, when? I broke my neck in 89 uh, in an ordinary hurdle at Warwick. And um, yeah, I, was w I was in hospital for three days, and they didn't find the break. I broke my C2. And I was walking around for a week at home with something clicking up here. And I didn't know I'd broken my neck. And then I went to see my physio, who's called John Skull. And he said, look, you want to go and have a scan? 
and they scanned it and found it straight away. And um, I was in a frame up to my chin and around my head and down to my waist um, for about four months. And um, it soon prepared. And how long were you out of the saddle for? How long did it take you to get back on a horse? Well, I was, I was told I'd be able to ride again in a year. And um, I was back in the saddle after six months, probably. But um, they then, I went to get my license at Portman Square, as it was then, and uh, they refused uh, to let me have it back. And, um, and that, was a, that was difficult to take at the time. And what was the reasoning for not giving you it back? Well, they thought if I had a, another bad fall that I might end up in a wheelchair or whatever, but um, there are other jockeys, Andrew Thorne and Mick Fitzgerald, that have done the same thing since, and, and they were allowed to come back. So it was, I wasn't ready for it, and I was young enough that I wanted to ride for longer than that, and um, yeah, it was, it was difficult at the time. So you started training not long after that? I started a training company, I, I, I was trying to do anything but train, because I never wanted to be a trainer, so I started a trading company, and that went down the tube because I didn't know what I was doing. So I was. I what was, were you trying to trade? Uh, submarines, diamonds, anything basically. <laughs> and I was being sent things on a fax, and I was sending them on, but I forgot to take the address or whatever on the guy who was sending me the deals. So of course, I was cut out of most of them. And, you have to stick to what you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to do that. So you couldn't sell submarines, you weren't very good at selling diamonds, no. but you could shift the odd horse or two? I've always been able to do that because I know a bit more about horses than I do about submarines, to be honest. And you made a startling comeback, and this is where I started the story, to ride in what many people would perceive to be the most dangerous race in the world, the Velka Pardubitska in the Czech Republic, what was then Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic, in, uh, in 95, on a horse called It's a Snip that you also trained. Yeah. Now, there's been a history of British and Irish riders in this race, but not one that is full of, full of joy. But for you, it was rather different. Just talk us through this. It was something I'd seen. I'd, I'd been out with a fellow called Gavin Rag to see the race, and it just, it just got me going, and I thought, you know, this race could be won with the right horse. And um, I saw a horse at Donkster Sales that Ted Walsh trained. Where are you here? Um, in, in the white colours, fourth. About fourth. Yeah. And um, I just had it in my head about this race and bought the horse from Ted Walsh for £4,000 uh, in August. And we didn't really have long enough to get him ready for the race the first year. But he finished second and he ran very well. And then the following year, we, we, we got a run into him before the race. Richard Dunwoodie rode him. And um, we went, I went out there a lot more confident than I was the first time. And, um, and he duly won, yeah. And did it matter to you that you were essentially out of practice, that you hadn't ridden in a, in a, a race of any description for five or six years prior to this? It was very tough. When you, when you, you only get race fit by riding in races. And I hadn't ridden in a race for six years or whatever. And, uh, as you can see here, I mean, I looked a mess, but I mean, um, when you're not riding regularly, it's terribly difficult, especially in a four and a half mile chase, to, um, to uh, you know, just to be the fitness thing is, is the most difficult thing. But you can't get fit to race ride. I mean, you, you, you get fit by riding races to race ride, yeah. And Charlie, what was it about you that made you want to do this? Because it's a, it's a strange thing to want to come back after six years out of the saddle and ride in a race like this and put yourself under that much pressure? 
I just thought I had unfinished business, and if, if you stop of your own accord, then it, it's a lot easier. But I stopped when I didn't want to stop. And I know Richard Dunn, what he was saying, he had an injury, and he, he couldn't come to oh, terms my word. for a long time. <laughs> uh, but You've looked round so many times that the horse has pulled up underneath you. Yeah, he pricked his ears, he saw the crowd, and he, he, he stopped dead, basically. But he won with more in hand than it looked. He, um, I probably wasn't helping him too much. Why the exaggerated look, looks round over each shoulder? Did you just want to stop at that point? Were you tired? Well, it wasn't from a handicapping point of view. No, but I was going to um, say. I, I, don't, I don't know. I just wanted to see where all the other horses were. And um, anyway, the right result came out of it. Was there a bit of you that thought it was a two fingers to the people who told you you couldn't ride again? Yeah, a little bit of that. Um, I wasn't... Because I was fairly outspoken in those days... Um, we had the odd spat with the jockey club, and I got fined uh, the first year for trying to get a foreign license. And um, yeah, there, there was a bit of that. But once I'd done it, that that was it. I'd um, uh, that was all I wanted to do. And the horse ran actually the next year, and Richard Dunwoodie rode him, and he finished third. And so I always had that over Richard, um, and I see him occasionally in Spain. And uh, he didn't win in it, and I did. You say you were quite outspoken. I would suggest you you still are. If something bothers you, you tend to you tend to air your grievance, don't you? Yeah, um, I've never been one to sit in the fence, but uh, yeah, I think some things need to be said, and um, probably sometimes they don't. But uh, it's never stopped me doing it. Do you think being more of a diplomat would have got you more horses over the years? Oh, undoubtedly. Yeah, I've, I've certainly lost horses because of things I've said and yeah some things I do regret saying but um, <laughs> it isn't going to change me now but uh, yeah we've got our, uh, our numbers of horses well down to what they should be and um, I don't think I've said too much lately but uh, in the younger days yeah I was always was up there with the best. Is there, is there any particular incident you regret in that respect? Yeah, there's one or two. Um, I wouldn't want to go into it right now, but yeah, we had some spats. Um, we've got, listen, we've got plenty of time. That's the beauty of this programme. We can sit here all morning. Yeah, um, I don't think that sort of major ones, I don't think we want bringing up again, to be honest. But um, yeah, as I said, I haven't sat in the fence on a lot of things, and it probably hasn't helped my career. What would you say has been the highlight of your career so far? Well, certainly, I think Noel Feely's been one of them, getting him going and getting him in the right direction. But we've had some good horses and some good times. Um, I think Celibate was my first good horse, and we won grade ones with him. And Horse School Air Force won. But you look back on any, anyone, look back on their career, and they look at the highs, and the highs are probably the good horses. Um, I love Celibate. Little horse, but huge heart. He was great, and... In the beginning of a career, you always think you'll find another one like him. And I haven't found another one um, well ever since, basically. And he must have done a lot for you in terms of essentially making your name, establishing your reputation. Oh, he's the sort of horse you dream about at the beginning of your career because he always ran his races. He was very sound. You could run him on any ground. And he was a two-mile chaser. And two-mile chasers, I think... Um, the good two-mile chaser, they are less competitive than other races. And um, you can turn them out every Saturday, and uh, there are races that are winnable, yeah. 
Mick Fitzgerald in the in the paper the other day was recounting the story of when he had to get off him to ride hmm. uh, Call Equiname in the Queen Mother Champion Chase, and you had a few choice words for him on that <laughs> occasion, but it all worked out well for him, at least, at, uh, in the fullness of time. Oh, it did. I mean, we sort of switched between uh, Mick Fitzgerald and, and Richard Dunwoody, and there was always a bit of um, banter between the two of them as to who would ride him. And I remember Richard got off the Mitchie in the Arkle, I think it was, and he rode one of the Dukes, and he fell. And we had Jamie Relton in to ride him, and he finished third. Um, so, yeah, but he was a great horse to ride, and very straightforward, and jumped like a stag, and, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And at that time, you were building up the stable slowly but surely. Did you, did you think that, in due course, you would be amongst the, the top stables in the country, or were you always someone who was determined to do things their own way? Well, as with a lot of young trainers, things happened quite quickly. We had, a, we had a very good first season and then bettered it. And it, it, it was, a, it, like a lot of people now, there's young, the young ones, um, it went quickly. We had to get another yard and um, we were running two yards and then we bought a big yard. And it, it all happened quite quickly. We, you know, we trained 63 winners in one season and... And it all, yeah, um, everything went the right way, and then we got a virus one year and uh, lost a few horses, and, and then it was a bit of a struggle after that. But um, we've been training, I've been training a long time now, and it's nowadays, if you can survive, it's something. And I've survived long enough, and we'll do it for a bit longer, yeah. Do you still enjoy it? I wouldn't do it if I didn't, that is for certain, because I don't make any money out of it. But um, yeah, I enjoy it. I mean, I'm, I get up at bed, out of bed at half five every morning, and if I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't do it because it's hard work. It's it's, it's harder work now um, for the smaller yards than it's ever been before, because the bigger yards are getting bigger and uh, the smaller yards are getting smaller. Is it is the day to day business of being a trainer as enjoyable now as it was when you started? <sighs> Possibly not. It's harder again, as I said. I mean, there's a big issue with staff. There's a staff shortage. Um, we're lucky and that we're okay right now, but um, it's a lot harder. And um, I think everything is against the trainer right now. And um, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, finding owners, um, getting horses, but buying horses um, for the sort of budgets that we have. And yeah, I think everything's against the smaller trainer right now. And what, if you're trying to sell yourself to an owner, how do you do that now? Because obviously, if you're, if you're young and you're just starting up, the, the selling point is quite obvious. I'm young, I'm ambitious, I'm starting. If you're Paul Nichols or Nicky Henderson, the selling point is obvious. How do you sell yourself as Charlie Mann? The only way you can sell yourself is to get winners. And um, it's difficult to get winners if you haven't got the numbers of horses that you want. But we've had a good season this yeah. year. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll get... We're selling horses now, and we're looking to next season. We sold two last week, but um, yeah, it's difficult. But people have to send me a horse because either they like me, or they're impressed at the number of winners we're training. But um, there's no half measures nowadays, and, and new money or new people into racing will go to the bigger yards because they don't do anything else, and it, that's that's the way it's going to always be. And I'm guessing with you, if you have an owner who uh, doesn't like the way you're doing things you would rather they went elsewhere? Oh yeah, no, we've had a few of them. And uh, I d we don't keep, one of the reasons we, we're low in numbers is because we get rid of horses fairly quickly when I know they won't win. So 
we're always honest with the owners and if a horse isn't capable we'll get rid of it and sometimes they don't get replaced. Uh, who's been the who's been the most challenging person to train for that you've <laughs> you, you've encountered? Uh, we've had one or two, but I mean, uh, you, 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 we couldn't say on um, on television because uh, <laughs> there's always a chance you might get them back. But um, <laughs> I went to uh, Paul Nichols. Always used to ask me to his open day, and I used to enjoy going down there because I'd see a lot of my old owners. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's the way it is. But I mean, a lot of owners are they want winners quickly, and the, you know, if things don't happen, then they're going to move on fairly quickly. So yeah, that's the way it is. It's not just for me; it's for everyone else. For eighteen winners this season and counting from a smallish string, you must be pretty happy. Yeah, we've done well. We had a good. We've won a, a lot more prize money than last year, but. It's difficult, as I said, when you've got a, a small budget. I mean, sport nowadays, whether it's racing, football, Formula One or whatever, the more money you throw at it, the more success you will have. And we don't have enough money to throw at it. That's the problem. So we have to go, we have to buy horses under the radar. And I'm sure that there's a lot of other trains doing the same thing, but we haven't got the you know, two, three hundred thousand pounds for the, um, the Irish pointer pointers. And, you know, you see it at Cheltenham, um, the bumper winner this year, Cheaply Park bought it, 400000 and mm. those are, those horses are that much money because they are the best available. Mm. And they're horses that perhaps 10, 15 years ago might have been eighty to 100000 and are now 400000 Their price has increased way beyond inflation. Yeah, I think it's all relevant. I mean, um, prices go up and everything, but... Uh, there's big money, you know. We've got Gigginstown, JP, um, Rich Richie, and they want the best available, and they're prepared to pay for it. So they're driving the prices up, and it's, it's great for the vendors, and it's 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 harder for us, obviously. Now, racing has been you know, under huge scrutiny in the last two or three weeks, and I know you're a man who will quite freely offer his opinion on how the sport is is being administered. But do you genuinely believe there is anything fundamentally? wrong or different with the way that racing is being administered now relative to how it was 10, 20, 30 years ago when you had all manner of run-ins with the Jockey Club, the BHB, now the BHA? I think the Jockey Club probably did a better job in their day than we're having now. As a, as a regulator? Yeah. Uh, the BHA are in a muddle and they're not helping us and there's a big divide now. It, it seems it's them against us and that shouldn't be the way it is. Is that not partly down to the reaction of the of the trainers and the horsemen as well it seems to me that the more the more polar they become the more polar the BHA become in in opposition if you like and we've reached the situation where nobody wants to find the middle ground but it should never have reached it in the first place I mean the BHA they're foreign to what we're doing right now I mean they're bringing in rules that uh, they're unworkable for us they're making our, our job a lot harder and it shouldn't be like that and they are, the way they are going, they are looking at us as if we don't know what we're doing. And it's wrong, and something has to be done. And I, I think there should be some resignations from the BHA because they're not doing it properly. And we're not informed about a lot of the things they're doing right now. And it, it's a whole thing, it's a joke right now, I think. Give me, give me some specifics. We've had things coming in, um, well, for instance, we've got temperature charts, which we have to fill in. We have to take a horse's temperature the morning of its race. We have to fill a chart in, and that chart has to go to the race course, and if it doesn't, the horse can't run. 
Now this, this, is, this is not worth the paper it's written on because you can put any figure you like in and um, it goes to the races and so what? You know, um, we look at the chart. There was an instance, I think, two weeks ago where a girl put in a, a very high temperature uh, by mistake. It got to the races and the guy said, look, if that's its temperature, the horse should be dead. So it's, it means that the whole thing isn't right because um, you, know, you can put anything you like in and uh, they can't, they're not going to, if it took its temperature when it got there, then fair enough, but they don't. So the piece of paper is not worth the paper it's written on. And another trainer, a friend of mine, sent three horses to the races four weeks ago and because he hadn't got those temperature charts, he wasn't allowed to run. So what you're saying is you, you feel there's a, an over-regulation, regulation in areas that don't need to be regulated? There's over-regulation because I don't think they know, they don't understand what we do. I mean, the trotting up of horses at Cheltenham was, I think, a disgrace because they're questioning us trainers about sending horses to the races that are sound. Mm. And they're going to do it again at Aintree. But nah, but n interestingly, and, and Nick Rust was on the programme last week, I don't know if you, if you saw, and Philip Hobbs was on the programme as well, who, I did, yeah. who trained Jerry's back, and we're going to talk about that later. And Philip said to Nick, some horses move in a way that will make you think they're not absolutely sound. That's racehorses. They're, yeah. not, they're not eventers. No. And the Aintree protocol has come out, and they've said that they'll trot up all the horses for the three races over the Grand National Fences, and that trainers, if they think their horses are poor movers or asymmetric movers, are to notify the BHA so that they're already, reg already registered on the system. So that gives you that fail-safe now, which seems sensible to me. But it should have been in, in, in place in the first place. I mean, a very good um, example was Freddie Head sent a horse to um, the Breeders' Cup, and it was favourite for one of the races. Mm. And it, wasn't, dream. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't allowed to run. Mm -hmm. But there were two horses, Gary Moore had two horses uh, that couldn't run at Cheltenham on a Friday. And one had trodden on a shoe on the way from the racing yard to the stables. And, um, it, you know, Gary said Stevie Wonder could have seen it was lame. And it couldn't run. But that would have been his judgment. Yeah. And the other horse had a bit of mud fever and he wasn't a great mover, as you were saying earlier. And he, he wasn't allowed to run. But the point I am making is that in the papers the next day, the BHA made out it was down to them those two horses run, and it wasn't. One of them should have run, and the other one couldn't have run. But that shouldn't have come about, and it makes trainers look bad in the press the next day, and it, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's something that shouldn't be there. I mean, we're not, no one's going to send a horse to the races that shouldn't be at the races, i.e. lame. And it makes us, it, it brings us into, to make, it makes us look stupid, basically. And the general public will be thinking, well, if a trainer needs a third party to tell him that horse is, is sound, then what are they doing? But this is the regulator, and they have to ensure that racing is conducted fairly and with integrity. They have to ensure that the welfare of the horse is paramount at all times, that the welfare of the people riding those horses is paramount at all times, of equal importance. Is it not the case that their intentions fundamentally are sound, but that there is, for whatever reason, a lack of trust that has, uh, has built up between some of the horsemen and some of the people in authority? No. I mean, trust, I don't know how you can bring it into it, but at the end of the day, all said and done, they, we shouldn't have a third party telling us uh, whether our horses should run or not. 
I mean, a trainer's licensed because he knows what he's doing. We, we have the best racing in the, in the world in this country, and we have trainers who are at the top of their league. And um, I think it's wrong that a regulating body should come in and say, right, we want to look at your horses to make sure they are OK. But, Charlie, you're, you're presupposing that everybody has the same level of integrity and probity that you do, and you know full well that that's not necessarily the case. So you have to have a regulator to make sure that, that best practice is being maintained, at least on a race day. I think you're wrong, actually, because when you're going to places like Cheltenham and Aintree, you're, you're talking about you're on the top stage. And I think you're totally wrong there, because you're saying that there are people that will send horses possibly to those race courses or the, the championship races. That it shouldn't be there, and that's that's complete. It's wrong, and um, you are talking about trainers who have the highest standards in the world. And um, I think it's wrong to question their ability to send horses to the races. Charlie, with all due respect, and this is this might be considered to be a low blow, but you, for example, have taken the wrong horse to the races more than once. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, it was quite funny at the time, but it probably wasn't very funny for you. If there hadn't been a regulatory system, you taking the wrong horse to the race, that wrong horse would have been allowed to run. Yeah. That would have been a complete disaster. You have to have a regulator in place. It's a question of the touch with which they regulate, surely. Hmm. This happens, but at the end of the day, these horses have gone, yeah, they're all chipped horses and they get scanned as they come in. So there's always been something in place to stop that happening. And it, and it does actually occur fairly regularly, especially in the bigger flat yards. But that horse, whether it went to the race or not, was sound when it went there. So we're actually talking about something else. And um, be it, the, the, the horse that went there might have been the wrong horse, <laughs> but at least it was sound when you <laughs> was capable of running. So, um, no, I think, I think um, there's, there's things in place now to stop the wrong horse being maybe cheap. It only happened last year. Um, a fella sent two horses to the race course. And he took the wrong one out of the stable, mm. and it won a, it won a three-year-old race. It was a three-year-old or mm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And now they brought in another another measure, which is a scan when they come out of the stables too. So they scan going in and scan coming out. But there has to be race day regulation, otherwise it's like the Wild West. There has to be, but not to the extent they're doing now, because I think it, it, it makes trainers look bad, and the general public think that we have to have a horse looked at before we run it. Then how do they perceive that? Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai.